I invite you to turn to Psalm 98, which is a very uh, fitting psalm in, in light of uh, where we are right now. And in fact, that Christmas carol we just sang, that we call a Christmas carol, uh, Joy to the World, is based on Psalm 98. If this, as I read it, sounds familiar, it's almost identical to Psalm 96. Hear God's word. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the world. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for how you have blessed us and you have blessed our effort together and ask your continued guidance and direction with this whole campaign and, and uh, demolition and construction and so forth. And we are humbled. We are very humbled at, at your work. Open our eyes now as the psalmist prayed that we might behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a uh, simple psalm to understand. It has three stanzas. And those three stanzas is the first is why we are to praise him. And then the second stanza is how we are to praise him. And the third stanza is who is to praise him. So let's look at the first stanza, verses 1 to 3. It just opens with, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Well, why? Why are we to do that? He tells us because God has done marvelous things. He has given us salvation. They had given the Jews salvation, a physical salvation from slavery after hundreds of years in Egypt. That was a physical salvation, but particularly he has gained the victory, it said, with his right arm. When the Bible says God gained the victory with his right arm, it's stressing that he alone did it. No one else helped him. There were not others involved. He gained the victory. So he's pictured as a soldier, and he gains a victory with this strong arm. Then verse 2 says, the Lord has made known his salvation. This was prophetic of what would happen later uh, when God would send the Messiah. And then in the, in the New Testament, we have salvation, which is deliverance from sin. Our greatest problem is sin, and it separates us from God, who is a source of all good. Now, who is it to save us? Only Christ, as Romans 8 says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So he delivers us from sin. He delivers us from death. Because of Christ's victory, we now know that when we die, if our trust is in him, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He has made known his salvation. He has revealed, it says in verse 2, his righteousness in the sight of the nations. God's plan has always been that the ends of the earth, that all nations hear the good news of Christ. 
Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, of all people groups. So our mission as a local church is to be part of that mission, now and forever, and that the Lord would use us as a tool toward that. So that is why we are to praise him. He has done marvelous things. He has gained the salvation for us. But the second stanza tells us how we are to praise him in verses 4 to 6. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Our joyful noise is a response to recognizing what God has done. In verse 4, it tells us to employ the songs, and the songs are to express joy. They don't create joy, but they express it. Now, this is important. Sometimes when we think, well, I'll attend a worship service, and then if the music moves me into the mood, I can feel joyful. It's the other way around. We should experience joy, and then we express it. We express it in worship. And here in verses 5 and 6, he says, employ these various instruments, the lyre, stringed instrument, trumpets, horns. When you look at the list, this is the symphony of a coronation. And when you think of a coronation of a, of a king or a queen, there's, a, there's brass and, and there's trumpets that make this sound. So it's a very noisy coronation. Our God is a king who is a supreme ruler, the lawgiver over the entire universe, working all things after the counsel of his own will. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his knowledge. He upholds and governs all the created world that he spoke into existence. He rules the destiny of men and of nations. And so to this king, we bring our noisy praise. Our noisy praise. I saw Paul McCartney interviewed one time, and he was asked what was his favorite songs that he had written, having written so many. He said that his favorites were those that he wrote about his wife who died years ago, Linda. And he said because they all had personal meaning to him. When we sing songs to God, they should have personal meaning to us. I remember as a, a child who grew up being taken to church by my mother, and hymns were sung, and songs in Sunday school classes and so forth. But then when I personally put my trust in Christ, I remember vividly standing in the worship services, and we would be singing out of a hymn book, and I would just stop. And I would, I would be staring at the words like, I've never noticed this before. And I may have sung it 400 times. And I would just look and say, look at that truth, or how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord, I would, we should know what we sing and sing with joy like that. So we're to make a joyful noise, and one of the best ways to do that is through singing. Now, I mentioned Isaac Watts' hymn, Joy to the World. Isaac Watts is my favorite hymn writer. He lived in the 1600s, and he was very concerned about the dull-sounding congregational singing in churches. Dull as in lifeless dull as in uh, uh, mundane in that sense. So he attempted to write hymns that would elicit joy and zeal, and joy to the world was one of those. As I mentioned, it's based on this psalm. We know it as a Christmas carol, but that was not his intention. It does not speak of Christmas at all. No mention of the manger, no mention of the shepherd, no mention of a baby, no mention of the wise men. 
Rather, it presents, obviously, a mighty, triumphant ruler coming to judge the world in righteousness. And so he is speaking of, in joy to the world, not the first coming of Christ, but his second coming, when this will be fulfilled in Psalm 98. So what inspired him to write that? Well, it was he desired to see joy, even in the congregational singing. Well, how are we to do this? The psalmist desires the worship of God to be extensive. It says in verse 4, the whole world. He desires for it to be enthusiastic. The noise of the temple was legendary. The Methodists, those early Methodists with John Wesley, they were known as heartily singing God's praises. That was a characteristic of them. And Wesley himself said, sing heartily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or asleep but lift up your voice with strength. I was speaking to a friend here who was at the SEC championship yesterday. I said, how are your ears? And he said, well, I took earplugs. And I asked that because I went years ago when Florida beat Alabama. And thankfully, not thankfully, a Florida fan took me from this church and we went up there. And I couldn't hear for like two days. It was so loud in the old Georgia Dome. Could you imagine it being quiet in a football game, you would think, well, nobody cares or they're not interested. It can't, and nobody says, Let's, uh, when you go in here, we want you to be loud. Well, the cheerleaders may have those signs up, but that, it just happens because of the enthusiasm. And that's what he's describing here. Let's go on last, the last stanza. Who is to praise him? He calls upon the whole creation. In verse 7, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. And so he calls upon everything in the oceans. There will come a day when even nature itself will praise God. The whales, the sharks, the jellyfish, the lobsters, everything, the fish of all sizes will praise God. Even the mountains themselves and the rivers. Why? Why will this happen? Now you ready? This is where the psalm this week hit me like a sledgehammer. This will all happen, verse 9, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the world. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Wait. <laughs> We're praising God and celebrating because he's coming to judge us? Does that sound like something to celebrate? So... The day of judgment, when Christ talked about the day of judgment, it was always very serious. It was sober. And he said, don't, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can cast your soul into hell. And as Hebrews says, it's appointed once for man to die, and after this comes judgment. So whenever judgment is talked about in the New Testament, it's never in a joyful celebration. Oh, we can't wait for that to happen. So what is happening here? Well, in our minds, in America, and my father was a judge, but we typically think of judges as criminal judges. In a criminal court, that a person's found guilty of committing a crime, and such as assault, or robbery, or murder, or, or so forth. And this person is arrested and, and, and charged and stands before a judge. And that judge is going to mete out justice. And some judges were known as hanging judges. 
During the 1800s, Judge Charles Parker in western Arkansas became known as the hanging judge of the American Old West. So if you are guilty of a crime, then going before a judge is not something you celebrate and look forward to. It's something to be dreaded. Are you with me on this? So when we get to this last verse, it's kind of like, what? wait, what? How can we celebrate that God's coming to judge the world? Now, the, the reference to God as judge in Psalm 98 is not as a judge of a criminal court. It's of a civil court. A civil judge is ruling lawsuits and housing issues and family cases of divorce and custody and bankruptcy or damages to property or personal harm. All these things in our uh, court system goes before civil court. And so the judges in a criminal court and judges in a civil court have different powers. Criminal court judges can punish you for breaking the law by sending you to jail. But civil court judges can order you to pay money or a fine or to make decisions about your family or your home. So before the civil judge, God is a civil judge, we are the plaintiffs. We are the ones saying, hey, wrongs have been done to me and I need vindication. And if you have a solid case and you are confident that I am in the right, these people stole my patent. They have cost me so much money or they have defamed my name, but I have got the documents and I know all the circumstances and I am right. And you've exhausted every possible avenue. You've talked to relatives, you've talked to friends, and they're tired of hearing about it. They don't, oh no, here comes Chip. He's going to talk about that case again. You want to go before the judge. Your desire is to get into the courtroom. Now, people in other parts of the world, in certain types of countries, the, the main aim is let's get in the courtroom. I can't get any justice unless I get before the judge. That was the case in the parable of the widow and the unjust judge that Jesus told. She goes before this judge and she says, I need justice. My neighbor, he's taking advantage of me. I need justice. And the judge says, you ain't getting any justice here today. And so he says, leave, and she's coming back day after day after day. And finally, he says, she is wearing me out. That's literally what it says. She's wearing me out. She's going to bruise me under the eye. And so he says, what do you need? She says, I want justice. Her goal was to get into court. That's what's being described here. Is that wrongs have been done to us. And now we want this civil judge to rule in our case. So the Bible tells us here, that history is all leading up to this amazing event, the return of Christ to the earth. And God is going to come down and he's going to put everything right. You have scars perhaps in your life from things that were done to you. Maybe forms of abuse. Maybe a broken relationship with a mother or a father or abandonment or a broken relationship with a daughter, or a son, or a sister, or a former co-worker, or a partner. And you can't do anything to make those things right now. It would seem that I've, I've exhausted every avenue I know, uh, I know how to, to go down, and I can't fix it. 
things, scars in your life, that, that no one has been brought to justice on those things. And here is a judge, and he's going to come in this civil case. Now, here's the interesting thing. Before you stand before him as a civil judge, you will have to stand before him as a criminal judge. And as a criminal judge, he says the wages of sin is death, that your sin and my sin deserves death. And this criminal judge says he's going to punish it. But guess what? The judge himself is Jesus. And he's got the punishment in his body. And he says, your sin deserves punishment, but I paid for it. And so now that I've stood before this criminal judge and my trust is in Christ, whom I love and want to follow and believe in, then I stand before him as a civil judge. And he says, you know, all those tears, all those tears from things that have happened, I'm going to wipe those away. Disabilities, gone. Hatred, gone. War, gone. Fighting, gone. Divorce, gone. I'm going to wipe it all away. And it will be a day when the ills of this suffering will be set right. Things will be put right. Randy Alcorn says about Revelation 21.4 where he will dry every tear. He says, these are tears of suffering over sin and death. The tears of oppressed people, the cries of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the unborn, and the persecuted. He will bind up every wound. He will set every bone. He will untie the knots of every treachery. He will heal the wounds of every harm. Every disease will be gone. Suffering will be over. Injustice, oppression, temptation, sin, hatred, coveting, stealing, murder, lying, all will be no more. The fatherless will be brought to their everlasting father. Every piece of this broken world, this puzzle with thousands and millions and billions of pieces will be put perfectly right and there'll be no pieces left off to the side. Every quarrel, every divorce, every estrangement, and we think, how can God possibly do that? There's seven plus billion people alive today. They tell us that in a few years it will peak at nine billion and then it's going to start going down. And you think of all the people who have lived and we think, how can God do this? Do you realize what you're saying? Put right everything in the life of everyone who trusts in him? Well, he's, he's God. He can do that. The judge is at the door. And knowing that, knowing that, the hearts of his people leap for joy. They leap like Isaac Watts was saying because he's coming and that's what he's going to do. He's going to make it right. So the question is, what do you think of Jesus? That's the dividing line of whether for you he is the hanging judge or he's the judge who vindicates the redeemed in heaven will sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the ages. So are you ready for his return? And you say, well, I want to be, or I hope to be at that time, or I'm working on it. No, the answer to that is, what is your condition now, right now? Not what you want it to be a month from now or in 2024, but right now. Do you love Christ? 
Do you trust him that he's paid for your sin? Do you want to follow him and, and live for him and obey him? See the Holy Spirit transform you into the person he wants you to be, to submit to him, to be filled with his spirit? Is that what you want? Romans is clear. When you think, well, what do I do? It says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we will all stand before you one day, and we desire that it be for the, as a vindicating judge and not as a criminal judge. And that's only possible because of the substitute of Christ and him taking our sin upon him and crying out to you, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he experienced death in the fullest sense of the word. But because of his resurrection, there's victory over death and there's hope for life after this life. So may our trust be in him and in him only. And we pray in his name now. Amen.